Well, uh, it's really nice to be here. Thank you all for coming. Uh, if you didn't come, I probably wouldn't say anything. So, thanks for coming, giving me a chance to express myself. Uh, I really like coming here to the uh, Brooklyn Zen Center and with the Jewish meditation community, two of my favorite uh, spiritual communities on the planet. So it's really nice to be here, particularly uh, with all of you. And I thought uh, I would like to tell you just a little bit about uh, four of our um, uh, Zen priests from San Francisco Zen Center who have died recently. Uh, even though you don't know them, uh, I just thought it would, I would like to tell you about them because these are some of the people who are practicing Zen in America for 20, 30 years or more. And uh, they're very admirable and honorable people. So I just wanted to begin by telling you their names and a little something about them, just so you get a feeling for the kind of people who have been devoting their lives to meditation practice uh, in America for all this time. So the first one I want to tell you about is Chikudo Jerome Peterson, who uh, still was living in the building at 300 Page Street, San Francisco Zen Center. He was in his 80s and had been living there for probably more than 40 years. And uh, they told me that he was walking down the hallway and dropped dead in, in the hallway. I, I don't know if that's right, but that's the story that, that I heard. And he was an amazing person, a remarkable, unusual person. He was even like really unusual looking. If you looked at him, you knew this is an unusual person. I can't describe for you what Jerome looked like, but just suffice to say that if you saw him, you would be impressed. He looked really unusual. Uh, he also, uh, for those of you, this should be an encouragement to those, for those of you trying to practice meditation, he had the, the, the oddest zazen posture uh, that I've ever seen. Uh, when he would sit down to meditate, you actually couldn't tell whether there was a person there or whether it was just a pile of robes <laughs> that somebody had sort of thrown. You saw this, and then if you look closely, you saw a bobbing head somewhere, not necessarily at the top, but somewhere in this pile of robes you could detect that there was a head. So he, uh, he encouraged many students who had a lot of trouble sitting in bad posture. They would be really inspired by his example. Uh, and uh, it may not be true, but what someone told me was that not long before he died, uh, he, he had been, uh, he had a, a group that met uh, every week, I think, in the Zen Center, and they were reading the entire text aloud of the Avatansaka Sutra, which is a really long sutra. And at that rate, meeting for an hour or two a week, it took them uh, 18 years to read through the sutra, because it's many thousands of pages long. And w the story that I heard was that after they came to the end, uh, the last word on the last page, without noticing it or marking it in any way, Jerome just picked up volume one and began again at the beginning and kept reading. So that was Jerome 
Peterson, a really great person, an admirable person. Um, probably many of you, so probably most of you didn't know Jerome, but I bet many of you knew or had been in this room or one of the other precursors of this room uh, listening to talks by Darlene Cohen, who was a wonderful uh, Zen teacher who died uh, a few months ago. She was really well known for her work with chronic pain because she had had uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, I remember when she got it in her 20s, when we were all living together at Green Gulch, all of a sudden she took to her bed and nobody knew what was wrong with her. And then later it developed that she had this really horribly debilitating rheumatoid arthritis that she spent the rest of her life uh, trying to overcome and work with in various ways, using quite directly uh, her practice as a way of working with this illness. And she was able to help many, many other people uh, with chronic pain over the years. And Darlene was a very funny, very lively, very outspoken and fun-loving person. Uh, despite this problem, I remember uh, in the 1980s uh, when Zen Center was going through a lot of turmoil, uh, somebody decided that what we needed was uh, a sort of in-house newsletter so that people could write and talk about what they were feeling and what was going on and so on. And they, uh, they had Darlene uh, write in this newsletter a gossip column. <laughs> and that's when I discovered what a great writer Darlene was because this was the most wicked, well-written, nasty, uh, you know, fun gossip column I, I had ever read. It was kind of modeled on the Herb Cain's column that was used to appear in the Chronicle in those days. I think she, she wrote it under a pseudonym so she could you know, dish on everybody that she wanted to. And uh, that was maybe her first published writing, and then she went on to write a number of books, uh, among them uh, The One Who's Not Busy and Turning Suffering Inside Out. And those books are available, and you can find them, I'm sure. So it was, uh, you know, she was just getting going really good with her work and her teaching when she got cancer and died um, just a little while ago. Her, I see her picture in the other room. She was only 66 years old, and she had good spirits and a full schedule uh, all the way up till the moment when she couldn't do any of those things anymore and always thinking, well, you never know, I might get better, you know, maybe. But then when it was clear that she wasn't going to get better, then she just uh, gave up and meticulously planned her funeral, uh, gave empowerments to her main students, uh, and, and died peacefully with everybody around her. It's, uh, some of you may, may have seen a Zen funeral, but it's a typical thing that there's a procession in and um, close family members or friends will carry different relics of the deceased person. Usually there can be up to five, six, seven people in the procession, each one carrying you know, a photograph or something that belonged to the person or represented the person's uh, passions or interests. Well, by Darlene's uh, wishes, uh, there were uh, 32 people in the funeral coming in 
putting things on the altar is quite, quite a thing. I think it was a world's record, <laughs> as far as I know, for Zen funerals that will not soon be surpassed. She was a great, a great soul, and uh, we're all going to miss her a lot. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was another funeral. These, these deaths all happen. Uh, they're kind of uh, remarkable to me because they were all so close together. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, we had a funeral ceremony for Lou Hartman, who lived to be 95 years old. And um, I don't know if any of you, any, any, anybody here who's ever visited the San Francisco Zen Center at 300 Page Street would have encountered Lou sitting in the small kitchen drinking coffee and telling stories uh, because he was a very noticeable and remarkable person that way. He was a great talker, a great talker. And he'd had a lot of jobs uh, in his life before he came to Zen. And uh, one of them was as a radio personality in the 1950s in San Francisco. So he was very well known in town for his radio show. Although, for some reason, the show was called The Jim Grady Show. <laughs> and he was known as Jim Grady. I have no idea. I think there might have been a preceding him, another guy who was also called Jim Grady, so not wanting anybody to know that Jim Grady had fled from the scene, they called Lou Jim Grady. And it was very successful, and he was really enjoying himself, but he was quite politically active, uh, and he had extreme left politics, and so when the blacklist time came, he was unable to work anymore in that industry. So he was, uh, really didn't work except at odd jobs uh, after that until he came to Zen Center. Um, uh, it's interesting. I, I always, every time I would meet a journalist, I would always say to the journalist who's interested in writing about Zen and so on, I would always say, you know, the greatest book you could write would be about the Hartman family. Because Lou was quite an amazing character, as was his wife, or is his wife, Blanche who was uh, Abbott with me of the Zen Center. But their children are actually quite amazing. Um, one of their sons is a, an expert in Kudo, Japanese archery, and he teaches it. Uh, and also spent maybe 25 years living in Japan where he became an Orthodox Jew. Uh, so he's very from, you know, and very uh, committed to Orthodox Judaism, and he has been for many, many years now. And they have two, and his wife is Japanese, and they have two sons, um, Isamu and Kenichi, who are both learned Orthodox Jews, completely look Japanese, you know. Uh, so it's kind of a funny thing, you know. That, that's, so that's one of, their, one of their sons. And then they have another a daughter, Mitzi, who um, had a, quite an amazing career as a porn star. She was famous. I forget her stage name, but she... Uh, I remember when Blanche first found out about this, because for a long time she didn't let on to her mother what was happening. When Blanche found out about this, she was like completely taken aback. But then uh, Mitzi, Mitzi's whole idea was, this is a good way to help people because people have such problems with sexuality. And her idea was, this is a good way to help people. Now that she's older and, and is no longer starring in Pornfield, she, she actually goes around the country <clears throat> speaking in 
quite frequently in synagogues for some reason, about uh, sexual health and sexual matters and giving advice about these things. So that's Mitzi. And then they have another son, Joe, who's one of the top Scientologists in the country. So it's quite a family. You know, it's really quite, quite a family. They have another daughter who's a psychiatrist. So they produced quite a, a batch of children. <coughs> uh, Lou, as a Zen priest around the Zen Center, he was uh, no, notable for his uh, simplicity and humility. He never would uh, take any teaching roles, any roles of leadership. He refused Dharma transmission. He only wanted to be uh, a kind of local priest, sort of quietly taking care of things in the background. And he, was, he would be washing the dishes, and he would mostly be taking care of altars and picking things up and cleaning things and repairing things that nobody else had the time to repair. <clears throat> About 25 or so years ago, I loaned him my uh, buzz machine, you know, that you can shave your hair off when your hair gets a little long, if you, if you keep your hair like this. So he wanted to borrow my, my machine, my clipper machine, and I gave it to him in the box it came in, which was a funky, very thin cardboard box that appliances, small appliances come in, you know the kind of box, and it was already falling apart. So Lou gave the appliance back to me, having duct taped the box very, very carefully. It was like a work of art, this box that the buzz machine came in, and, and it lasted, I, I think I threw it away last year. This box lasted 25 years, and I used that thing all the time because Lou had repaired it. Uh, occasionally, he would agree to give a Dharma talk when there was nobody else around you know, to do it. He would occasionally agree to give a talk. And I have listened to all of his talks, but I heard a number of them. And as far as I could tell, he would always give exactly the same talk. <laughs> He would walk into the zendo, he would sit down, and he would say, I had a whole talk prepared that I was about to give you, but just as I was walking into the zendo, or sometimes it would be just an hour ago, or just yesterday, something happened to me that so utterly and completely has change my life, that everything that I believed in up until that moment is out the window. I can no longer give you the talk that I planned to give you because everything is now in doubt. And then he would proceed to tell you about all the things in his life that had failed him, that he had had faith in, that had utterly failed him, starting with his family of origin, that he you know, was a wonderful family. It turned out it wasn't such a wonderful family, and that was a terrible. And then his Christianity, he actually was a child preacher, and that completely turned out to have feet of clay, and then Marxism, and all the way up to all the things that had failed him, all the way up to and including Zen Buddhism, which he had had faith in until the moment, a few moments ago, <laughs> just as he was on his way to the Zendo, when something had happened to him that completely wiped out everything that he had believed in. And it would take him about 45 minutes to tell you this 
whole story. And the funny thing is that every time he told this story, every time he said this, it was utterly sincere. He, either he forgot that he had done it before <laughs> or, or something, but you completely believed it. You know, you totally believed it. And, and, and it was so sincere and it was so chilling, you know, to hear, to see a person in the throes of having just lost everything that they had ever believed in as if his last and final cherished belief had now been shattered and that this was absolutely the last straw for him and that the only thing that he had left was this moment of telling you what had happened. And that was his talk. Uh, every time that, anyway, every time that I had heard him talk, I was lucky that uh, I was around during the last uh, few weeks of his life and I got to visit with him. He was okay and then he fell, as often happens, and then he took some pain medication for the fall and then that quickly took him uh, into um, unusual states of mind and then rapidly into death. And when I saw him, he, he was uh, on this medication and his mind was not quite right. But it was a kind of an amazing thing to have a conversation with him and, and witness him in this kind of uttered, uh, altered state to try to be thinking through uh, what he should do now at his age and in his condition about life and death. You know, should he walk toward death or should he struggle for life? And what would be the reason for either one of those choices. And he was really thinking this through in his way. It was kind of a marvelous thing to, to witness. He did finally die just a few days later, and I was able to even be there the day of his death, and everybody was there. All of his children were there, and even one of his grandchildren, Joe's daughter, uh, Becky, has a child, so his great grandchild was actually there in the room uh, when he died. So was Blanche. They were married for 63 years. 63 years married and uh, practicing Zen together for probably uh, something like 35 or 40 of them. The fourth, fourth priest who recently died is, uh, was Wendy Matlow. Uh, and she was actually in our ordination group on January the 6th, 1980, we had a group of, I don't know how many of us were ordained together at the San Francisco Zen Center, and Wendy was in that group. Um, she was the second member of the group to have passed on Tom Girardeau, uh, who was a wonderful artist and the sweetest man in the world, just a wonderful person uh, who had great tragedies. His he and his wife had one son who was an avid surfer and was killed by a wave in Hawaii. His wife was so grief-stricken by this death that she committed suicide. And Hekizan, Tom, uh, lived on, you know, with a lot of sadness, but also a smile on his face for maybe seven or eight years past that until he, until he died. So Wendy's the second person in our ordination group to, to pass away. So, <clears throat> these deaths are, uh, I realize that 
they're not of great concern to you, and I apologize for telling you these stories. I tried to make them amusing so that you've got a feeling for who these people are. But, you know, it, to me, it's really a big thing because uh, there are people that I've known my entire adult life, people that I've practiced with uh, side by side and, and loved uh, dearly and knew so well. And, uh, you know, it makes me realize uh, that there's a generation of people who have been doing uh, Zen practice and meditation practice uh, in America, having given their lives to it, to do this. And this generation uh, of us is passing on. Uh, so uh, that's sad for me and uh, I, I think important for you because it means that um, the responsibility and the possibility is in your hands uh, as this generation uh, passes. What will you do and how will you carry this forward? It's such a strange thing, the idea that you could sit in silence and do absolutely nothing and that this would somehow revolutionize your life. This is an idea that nobody in this room, myself included, would ever have come up with on our own. We would live our entire life and we would never think of this. It would never have occurred to us. It's so radical and so unlikely a thing that it would never have occurred to us. The only way we would know about it is because people have kept the flame of it alive generation after generation and uh, it, there's nothing that guarantees that it would stay alive a hundred years from now or two hundred years from now. Humanity could lose it. So there's a generation of people who devoted their lives to preserving it and they're, now they're, they're passing on and it's your turn. Anyway, I want to talk about a Zen story that I think uh, is in keeping with the lives of these uh, people that I'm telling you about and also um, uh, evokes the theme that I wanted to uh, touch on tonight of spiritual friendship. So here's the story. Uh, Long Tan was making rice cakes for a living. He met Tian Huang and as the story says, he, he bowed to him and left his home and followed Tian Huang. Tian Huang said to him, uh, Be my attendant. From now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. A year passed, and Long Tan said, When I arrived, you said you would teach me the essential Dharma gate, but I haven't received a single instruction yet. And Tian Huang said, I've been teaching you all this time. And Long Tan said, What have you been teaching me? And Tian Huang said, When you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. Long Tan was silent for a while. Tian Wang said, when you see it, you just see it. When you think about it, you miss it. Long Tan then had great enlightenment. So to me, this is such a lovely and simple story. 
Uh, and it speaks to the, the radical simplicity of what we are trying to do uh, in Zen practice and in, and in any tradition, I think, that, like in the Jewish meditation tradition that has contemplative practice uh, at, as its basis. It's something very, very simple that we are doing. Uh, there is not a lot of content to it. There is not a lot of know-how to it. Uh, we're not talking about uh, a special insight. We're not talking about uh, a special experience. We're not talking about secret, esoteric knowledge. It's also not that there's nothing to it. It's not that we're just wasting our time or taking a break from life or goofing off on our cushions there definitely does seem to be something to it. And anybody who's done it for a while can attest to this. And especially when you continue to practice over time, things seem to change in your heart, in your life. And little by little, you begin to see your life uh, in a radically different framework, and therefore to live it in a radically different framework, I, I hope with more openness and more ease, maybe with more kindness, maybe with more wisdom. Maybe one way to look at it is that the process of practice over time uh, matures us or seasons us. Um, or maybe it isn't that the practice does that, it's just that we naturally mature and season over time as we live our lives. Maybe that's just a natural process that maybe the meditation allows to happen because as we all know it doesn't necessarily happen. Maybe a natural process but it doesn't necessarily happen. You know, Everybody who lives a while doesn't necessarily become kind and wise and, and open. But I think that is a natural thing that happens to us as we live and maybe the meditation keeps the possibility open for that to happen uh, within our lives. So it might not be the effect of the meditation, just the meditation helps the natural process. So the point I'm making here is that I think our practice is not um, a something, you know, a body of knowledge uh, or, or, or a set of skills. Uh, also, I don't think it's either just a matter of experience. It's not a matter of, you know, being experienced in the practice somehow gives you a leg up on somebody who's not experienced in the practice. So it's not that either. It's just that time passes. We keep practicing. Our lives are what they are. And we get to the place where that's always just enough. Over the course of time, we pick up on a particular feeling for living, a kind of flavor for life that maybe you would call it Zen or something. But I wouldn't even call it that. It's just a way of being in life. And as this story tells you, the main method actually isn't meditation. 
I mean, we certainly do plenty of meditation and we talk about it enough, and it's there. But this story actually is not a story about meditation practice. It's about the main method. And the main method is hanging around together. That's actually the main method. And I think it is so easy to miss this point in the context of our contemporary lives, the way they're organized. Our lives are so focused on individual achievement and individual development that we automatically map that idea onto our spiritual practice. And we, we tend to understand our practice in those terms as another format for our self-development. A skill or a technique or a system of understanding that we could figure it out, we could master it, we have good teachers and we put in the time, we'll get it. It'll make our life much better. That's how I think we tend to look at it. But I don't think it actually works that way. And the method is hanging around together, just like the ancients did in all these Zen stories. And people still do that now in places like the San Francisco Zen Center temples and other residential Zen places. But we don't, most of us don't do that. I, I, I myself don't do that anymore, although I did it for most of my life. Most of us now practice in our own lives. We don't hang around together in a, in a communal life. We practice in our own lives, with our own families and relationships, our own work. And we come together once in a while, like here we are together now for a talk or coming on Saturday morning here or the night for Jewish meditation or, you know, and sometimes a retreat. We have events, we come to events, and we encounter each other then, but we don't really hang out together so much. So we may think that the hanging out together part is not relevant to us. But I think that's not right. I think the hanging out together part is just as important for us as it, as it was in those days. How much time does it actually take to hang out together? It only takes a moment to encounter one another, to know one another in some deeply felt way is not necessarily a matter of a lot of time. It takes a moment, literally, to observe and take into your heart uh, the presence of another person. It takes a moment for that presence to go inside and deeply impress us and change us. And this maybe is where the meditation practice figures into it. Because the meditation practice and the setting and the surrounding, and in the case of Zen, the various rituals we do and the chanting and the feeling of the Zendo, all those things create an unusual atmosphere, not the normal atmosphere. And in the context of that unusual atmosphere, we can uh, meet each other in these ways and truly encounter each other and change each other's hearts 
in these encounters, we can feel something about our lives if we pay attention to it, if we're open to it, that we don't feel, usually. Now, it's not that it's there in the meditation rooms and not elsewhere. Of course, it's a condition of being human. It's always present at any moment, at any time. And sometimes it does happen quite spontaneously, out of the blue, for no reason. We might have a moment of encounter, a moment of being with someone that will change our lives forever. That potential is actually there on every moment. In fact, you could actually say that that's the essence of lived time. I mean, every moment does change your life forever, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. Every moment has that power. But who notices this, right? We're so busy, and we have appointments. What time is it? The subway's, you know, broken down. I've got to go three blocks over here. And so on. Who has time to notice that every moment has that power uh, to turn us? So that's why we probably need to go to places like this where the whole setting and the whole intentionality of it reminds us, oh, that's right. My life actually is a lot more mysterious and powerful than I thought. And I just forgot that. I didn't notice that. But when I walk into this room, when I sit down, when I start to breathe in this way, among others, it becomes inescapably obvious. So every moment is a momentous moment. And that's a funny word, huh? Momentous? <laughs> right? And if you look it up in the dictionary, it means uh, extremely important, extremely crucial, especially for its effect on the future. That's what something that's momentous is. And of course, it comes from the word moment, an instant of time, a very short instant in time that has significance, or maybe even ultimate significance. Something is of moment, something is momentous, we say. In Zen practice, momentous moments are moments of profound teaching, such as the moments that are mentioned in our story. When we greet each other, we bow, a momentous occasion. We sit together, we stand together, we drink tea together. These are momentous occasions. It's very famous uh, in Judaism, I forget which Rebbe it is that somebody says, I came to visit the Rebbe not to hear his teachings, not to study Torah with him, but to see how he ties his shoes. That's why I'm here. So this sense of encounter and profound meeting exists in all deep traditions. So we spend time together. We get to know one another. <clears throat> but it's a little bit different from the usual way of knowing one another. Because it's not that we're exchanging views and opinions, although we might do that. But that's not the kind of way that we hang out together. 
because those things are important. But when you really get down to the bottom of who you are, <clears throat> those are not the most important things, you know? Uh, where you went to school and where you work or have worked or what you think about this or that is not the most important thing about you. Those things are literally occasional. They happened, they happened on an occasion and they provide you with an occasion to say something to someone. The real conversation is going on on another level. As probably you all realize, you know, nowadays it's very popular to study the brain. Now they have new gadgets that they can study the brain with, so uh, you can get a lot of funding if you want to study the brain. And it's a good field to go into if you're a young scientist. We, uh, we have a nephew who's a, brain, a cognitive scientist. So the brain and emotions is a big topic. And um, David Brooks, you know, local guy. Uh, probably half of you here know David Brooks. He probably goes to your house for dinner, no? <laughs> anyway, David Brooks is very interested in this. <clears throat> and he wrote a book about it. He's been on all the TV shows talking about his book, which is called, I think, The Social Animal. It's all about the brain science uh, and emotions. And, and he's a political commentator. And so he very astutely realizes that the basis of what goes on in politics is people's you know, emotions, and what goes on in people's inner lives is, has a lot to do with our political life. So that's why he's interested, I guess. So more or less, he says in his book, that the most of what goes on between us in our relationships is not what seems to be going on. It's not the stuff that we know about, that we're worried about. But that's not what's actually happening. Most of what goes on between us is not conscious. It's very subtle. And it's taking place on a level in which most of us are not living. In other words, whether we know it or not, whether we're consciously living it or not, our encounters always are momentous anyway. And we are living these momentous lives. We are, anyway, standing in each other's sacred presence. We are, anyway, drinking in each other's being. And we are influencing each other and affecting each other in mysterious ways that none of us really appreciate. And this is a primary teaching in Zen. We are turning each other inside out simply by being in each other's presence, by breathing together, uh, sitting together, standing together, walking together, working together. Back home in Everyday Zen, uh, one of the people in our group said to me, I know your feet which is a funny, odd thing to say, you know, and a very intimate thing to say. Uh, we can know somebody really well. They can be a good friend, a family member, 
But we, we might not know their feet or their hands. We might not actually know their hands. We might not even really know their face or their voice, even though we know perfectly well what they look like. But we might not actually have taken in uh, their appearance. And yet, aren't we really that? Aren't we our hands and our feet and our face and our voice more than we are our opinions or our histories? It only takes a moment to know these things about each other, a moment in which our minds are quiet and our hearts are wide open. So although in groups like um, Brooklyn Zen Community and Jewish Meditation Center, Everyday Zen, we don't live together like they do some places or did in the past. In another way, we do live together in just this way. And we come to realize after a while that we have no one else but each other. And there is no other life for any of us uh, but the life we live together. So on the one hand, it only takes a moment, but on the other hand, it takes a lot of time, long time, years, maybe decades, in which there are many such moments of encounter. One moment maybe is enough, but also many such moments will deepen our appreciation of one another. And time will intensify our concern and commitment to one another. And one of the greatest experiences, I think, that we can have as a human being is to know the feeling that another person is really on our side, is really for us and with us no matter what. And this is not a, feel, a matter of, you know, we know the person is loyal to us or something like that. It's not that. Because it goes beyond, you know, what this person is going to do for us. It's just a feeling of knowing deep down uh, that we are here, literally here for each other. That is why we are here, knowing that we are here for each other. That feeling is one of the most beautiful of all human feelings. And when you, when you feel that feeling, you always feel happy and you feel secure. Even if everyone were to disappear, you would still feel that because it's clear that this is not about a particular person or about any particular group. It's about the condition of being human. It's about reality itself. Reality itself is lovely and loving. And this is not uh, a religious doctrine or something like that with terminology we can put on it. This is just what you know to be true. This feeling maybe does take a long time of hanging around together uh, to appreciate. 
But little by little by little, uh, we do feel it. So this is a story about spiritual friendship, something uh, really wonderful. And, uh, you know, the popular notions of Zen don't kind of realize, I think, how tender-hearted and, you know, other-oriented and relationship-based Zen practice actually is. When you think about it, all Zen stories are not stories about people on mountaintops having enlightenment experiences. They're all about people encountering each other, people who know each other really well encountering each other. And in Zen, you know, you don't speak too much about Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you speak about ancestors, which is a kind of special term, you know, that's used in Zen, but not used in other Buddhist traditions. Ancestors are people, they're not spiritualized beings, people that we feel grateful for, people that we take deeply into ourselves just in the way we've all taken in the presence of our ancestors as if we were somehow our ancestors. And of course, in a very real way, we are our ancestors, right? We're carrying around the same DNA as our ancestors. We carry forth uh, their lives in our lives. Our very bodies come from our ancestors. And in Zen, the idea is that we receive the Zen lineage, uh, which is like a kind of body that we take on and that the ancients become our ancestors. So, I don't mean this to sound, you know, more esoteric than it is. I mean, this is a commonplace human thing, although most of the time we, we miss it. But it's not just something in Zen or something in meditation traditions. It's just, you know, our lives. I have friends who are, you know, university professors training graduate students. And I realized after a while, oh, you know what? It's a very similar thing. There's a kind of relationship there. And the intellectual tradition upon which it's based is actually turns out to be really an excuse for a deeper connection. Even though they don't see it that way or talk about it that way, it happens anyway that way. And in many, many ways, you see this in, in human interaction. So it's not unique to Zen or, or to spiritual practice the deep connection expressed in this story of Longtan and uh, Tianhuang is something that we can feel in all of our human encounters. And the virtue of our practice is that it reminds us of this and evokes this sense of connection, which can be present everywhere, not just in the spiritual community. And, and it's important that we realize this because this becomes a problem, right? The very intimacy and preciousness of our connection in spiritual communities becomes a problem when we see that as exclusively existing within the spiritual community. Then it becomes cultish and overly precious and paranoid, you know, and we, we can do without that. We've had enough of that all these generations. So we need to realize that if we have and feel those connections within our communities, it's not because we have a special community and these are special people. It's because this is human, and thank God we have people that we can discover this with. But it goes to, to everyone. Uh, Tian Huang says, when you greet me, I bow. And, you know, this is an ancient form of respect in India. 
here we have a, actually a much more informal and intimate way of connecting with each other. We shake hands, you know. It's a better in a way, you know? more intimate, more connected. But actually, you know, the origin of the shaking hands gesture is that uh, it shows you don't have a weapon. So you shake hands. So the good news is we're more intimate. The bad news is that the intimacy is predicated on violence that we're putting aside for the moment <laughs> to be nice to each other. Um, bowing, on the other hand, is a great you know, metaphor for this kind of intimate connection that I'm talking about because it includes distance. When we bow to each other, it is a gesture of affection and deep respect, but there is a space between us. And that space doesn't express, you know, arm's length distance. It expresses the sense that we will never truly understand the measure and the depth of this other person. Uh, we're all completely alone. And it's based on that reality that we meet each other at the deepest possible level. So our aloneness and our intimate connection with each other are one and the same thing. And, and, and in a way, uh, a bow is a beautiful, beautiful metaphor for that. So, uh, I wanted to close with just saying a few words about the greatest uh, spiritual friend I ever had, uh, Rabbi Lou, who I know some of you know, Alan Lou who uh, died suddenly, uh, January the 12th, 2009. We were leading a Jewish meditation center together here in New York, in upstate New York, in the snow. We had a wonderful, quiet week uh, together. And um, he went off to a, a rabbinical retreat, and I came home to California. And on that rabbinical retreat, after the morning uh, meditation and breakfast, he was on a walk, and nobody knows exactly what happened, but he collapsed and, and died all of a sudden, completely shocking uh, to all of us. We were uh, great spiritual friends for one another for, for 40 years, more than 40 years. Uh, we met at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, I think literally on the first day of classes, uh, in 1968, and uh, we began uh, a, a lifelong dialogue and communication on matters of uh, the spirit, and we uh, took in each other's presence uh, with a lot of uh, real appreciation, you know, that whole time through. It was kind of funny the way our lives went. You know, we, when we met in 1968, the furthest thing on either one of our minds was that we would become religious practitioners and that that would be our lives. We had no idea. Ne if anybody would have said that to either one of us, we would have said, this is a ridiculous uh, idea. We never suspected such a thing. We were both intended to be famous writers. But sometimes uh, what you think your life is and what it actually is are two different things. And you're lucky if you get disabused of your notions and are forced by life to go another way. Because what you can think up 
for your life is not nearly as interesting as what God thinks up for your life. So we were together in Iowa City, uh, and then uh, we moved together to uh, California, not necessarily on purpose, but just sort of it worked out that way. And we spent a lot of time together. California, we were students together at the Berkeley Zen Center, uh, living together in the center, running the center. We went to our first practice period at Tassajara uh, together. And I remember we went with um, my wife Kathy, the three of us went and we visited her uncle Paul along the way because his house was sort of on the way to Tassajara. And uh, Uncle Paul was a, a ne'er-do-well alcoholic guy, a very nice guy actually, but he just drank a lot. He thought it was fun to drink a lot and he thought that since we were going to Tassajara to be monastics and shut up in the monastery, we certainly should drink a lot <laughs> on the way. So we actually got very drunk. <laughs> and those of you who know the Tassajara Road know that it's not a good idea to be driving over that road. But fortunately, we, we made it there on time, intact, in I mean. Anyway, I won't go into the very long story about how it was that after all that he became a rabbi but he did, and we maintained our connection. And when he was in the Jewish Theological Seminary here in New York, I would come and visit him and attend his classes with him. And uh, we would always be talking about religion and meditation and so on. He had a congregation here in, in uh, Monroe, New York, and then uh, he got a job in San Francisco in 1990 in a big synagogue there. So then we were, after a time of maybe a decade of not living, either on, living on different coasts, we were now living close to one another. He was terrified that anybody would find out about his checkered past as a Zen person. He tried to keep this like a well-hidden, but finally it came out in the Jewish newspaper that he had this past, and to his surprise, his congregants didn't throw him out. They said, oh, we think this is really interesting. And so that's when we started doing meditation work together. We, we, we did a series of retreats and talks and whatnot that we called Translating Judaism, Translating Buddhism. And he would do like Jewish teachings and I would do Buddhist teachings and would have meditation. And uh, the same thing would happen every time. At the end of the retreat, we would be, uh, or, and, and all during the retreat, when there, there were interactive parts, all the Jewish people would be, because it was all almost entirely Jewish people, they would all be uh, saying to him, so how come Judaism can't be as inspiring as Buddhism is? How come Judaism is so this and so that and this and that? And they had all kind of complaints about Judaism. And uh, so I thought to myself, well, this is really good. You know, we're giving, the, we're giving these people a chance to, you know, kind of express this stuff, which they can't express when they go to Buddhist places, because who cares? You know, nobody's interested in talking to them about their problems with Judaism. So they sit there like good Buddhists, and they don't ever say anything about it. We were giving them a chance to meditate and complain 
you know, about Judaism, and hopefully this would be good for them and heal them a little bit, you know. So I thought we were doing a good thing. And I was shocked when one day he said, I can't keep doing this anymore. I said, why not? I think it's good that we're doing this. He said, he said yeah, but it's killing me. It's too hard on me. Everybody's complaining. They're after me all the time. I'm the identified you know, defender of the faith, and I've got to defend the faith, and they have all these problems, and, and you're over there being Mr. Serene, nice Buddhist and everything, <laughs> and it's just impossible. I can't do it anymore. So I, I said, well, okay, I can understand that. I, I didn't quite realize. I mean, he was always... He was always saying it, but I, I, he would say it with a smile and, and as like a joke. And I didn't realize it was actually so hard on him. So we stopped. And then one day, I remember it was in the sukkah outside of his house on the holiday of Sukkot. We go over there. And he says, we should start again. I said, good, let's start again. He said, but we should do it differently this time. I said, okay, good, let's do it. He said, this time, no Buddhism. Because that only makes for a big problem. I said, you know, you're absolutely right. You're, you're right. We should just do Jewish meditation. Then, you know, nobody is... If they, if they want to complain, they can't complain and compare Buddhism to Judaism. They just have to complain about Judaism, and that'll be, make it better. So we agreed that we were going to do Jewish meditation. And I, so I said, well, but if we do Jewish meditation, I'm happy with that. That'll be more interesting for me, because then I won't have to yak my usual Buddhist this, Buddhist that, and I can just listen to your uh, talks about Judaism because I'm really learning a lot and I appreciate that. He said, no, no, you have to give talks about Judaism. <laughs> so we'll do it just like we did before, except I'll give a talk about Judaism and you'll give a talk about Judaism. I said, well, but there's a problem with that. I, said, I don't really know that much about Judaism. I'm not, I don't have the capacity or the knowledge to give a talk about Judaism. He said, well, you could learn. You could study. <laughs> and I said, that's a good point. You make a good point there. So that's when I started actually studying Judaism. I used to have to like, spend around 10 times more talk, uh, time preparing a, one of my Jewish talks than I did my Buddhist talks because you know, I knew more about Buddhism. And to this day, it still takes me around twice as long to prepare for a Jewish meditation talk as it does for a a Buddhist talk. But anyway, I did. I studied, and uh, we, would, we would do that. We would have Jewish meditation and each give a talk, and we went that way for a few years. And then in 2000, because this was going on all through the 90s, in 2000 we opened a Jewish meditation center in San Francisco called Makor Or, which was unique, because most Jewish meditation places, at least at that time, were sort of renegade places. They were like fairly scornful of normative Judaism, and they said, we're, we don't believe in that. We're, we've got a new kind of Judaism. Uh, but this was a Jewish meditation. He was the rabbi of a synagogue. It was a conservative synagogue. So this was a Jewish meditation center where we would meditate, and then we would go to the regular synagogue services, and we would do the regular synagogue things, and that made it really unusual. And uh, uh, so... Uh, you could imagine uh, what a uh, crisis it was when he died. What would we do with our Jewish Meditation Center? So we got the community together, and we said, now what will we do? And they said, we will continue. And so we have been continuing, and our community is actually very strong right now. 
and um, mostly I take care of the community on my own, but there's a, a wonderful rabbi who works with me sometimes, but she has three young children, so she's wonderful and very strong teacher, but it's hard having three young children, right? So she can't come so often, but she does, and she always adds so much when she comes, and if anybody uh, could sit in Rabbi Lou's seat, uh, it's her, Dorothy Richmond, wonderful person and rabbi. But, you know, it's very sad for me to have lost my, my rabbi and my best friend and my spiritual companion, the person that I, you know, knew the best and trusted the most in, in my life. And, uh, but, in a way, you know, I didn't lose him also. And, and now I'll tell you one last story before I uh, stop. Alan uh, collected pens, uh, fountain pens. I also collect fountain pens. So I thought we had this in common. I have like, I must have five or six, seven, eight fountain pens. So we would talk about our fountain pens and so on. So this went on for a while, and one day he said, I'll show you my fountain pen collection. Well, he had about five or six hundred fountain pens, <laughs> antique fountain pens. Every fountain pen known to humankind, he had a whole range of them. He, they're special. Do you know that there's a whole universe of fountain pen collectors? I didn't know this. This is like a whole world, which he was heavily tapped into buying and selling and bidding on fountain pens and this and that. I mean, it was really something. And when I saw these fountain pens, my jaw dropped. I had never seen anything like it. He had these, like, folders. He'd open up a folder, and there would be boom, 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 you know, like 100, 150 fountain pens flipping through page after page. Amazing. I was really impressed. And this whole fountain pen collection was worth a fortune, right? I mean, it's really, because the fountain pens, they, it's like the stock market. They appreciate you get the right fountain pen. <laughs> So he had really quite a bit of money tied up in fountain pens. And just before he died, he was in the process of selling some of his fountain pen collection because he needed to finance like his daughter's education or something like that. So he was selling his fountain pens. In the middle of selling the fountain pens, he sold a bunch of them to this guy and, uh, somewhere far away and sent the fountain pens to the fellow and the money was supposed to come back, a sizable amount of money, maybe $10,000 or something like that. And the guy died. And the money never came. And so he got a hold of the person's widow and said, well, you know, I hate to mention this. If, you know, you've just lost your husband, but we had this transaction. And Well, the widow had hired an attorney. She had no concept of any of her husband's affairs. And she had just put everything in the hands of the attorney. And she said, I don't know anything about it. You have to contact the attorney. Well, there was not a very good, very organized paper trail around the pens. So the attorney let my friend know, sorry, we're not paying this. Get a lawyer if you want to, but we're not going to pay this. So he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, I could get a lawyer, and I would certainly get my money back. No doubt, you know. But by the time I paid the lawyer, you know, it's just not worth it. So he forgot about it. And he would talk about it. He would tell the story, just like I'm telling you now. He would tell the story at talks. And he would say, and you know what? That was a well, 
I'm really glad that that happened because it taught me something I didn't know before. What did it teach him? It taught him that when you're dead, you can't do anything. <laughs> and he would say, now of course I knew this before, but I didn't really know it, the profundity of that reality. That when you're dead, you actually can't do anything at all anymore. Never occurred to me in the way that it, that I never knew it then in the way that I know it now. So I'm telling you this story because I thought of this after Alan died. And I thought, that's right. When somebody very dear to you dies, there's something that they do that they can no longer do. And if you love that person and they're close to you, you have to do it for them. And in that way, they remain alive in your life. So I thought, what did Rabbi Lou do that he can no longer do, that I don't do, that I have to do now? And I immediately realized what it was. He was always so concerned about everyone. If anybody in his family had a problem, he, was, he would just be saying, oh, this is terrible, so-and-so has this, and so-and-so that. And, and every, this actually, probably in the end, is what did him in. Because he was so concerned about people and would really take it in to himself uh, that, uh, that it was, you know, and I, and I always thought that was such a wonderful quality in him. And I'm not like that, you know. I'm a kind of pretty sort of, I don't know what, like I forget about everybody and everything, you know. I'm like, I don't know, I'm doing this or that, and I just forget about everybody. Too much emptiness or something, you know. <laughs> so I thought, no more of this. From now on, I'm going to be much more concerned about people. And I've been very consciously doing that since Alan's death. Uh, and in that way, uh, he's very close to me. You know, whenever anybody that I know in my vicinity has a trouble, anytime that happens, uh, he's very close to me. And I am concerned about that person. And I really care, even though I'm still failing and caring most of the time, still I have many more. So anyway, the long and the short of it is I'm a much, I have much more unhappiness than I had before. <laughs> because when you're concerned about people that have trouble, you know, you're, you're not happy, right? You're unhappy. So now I have a lot more unhappiness because a lot more concern about other people, genuinely taking it in. But I'm happier to have that unhappiness. It's better for me. I think it's good for me to have that unhappiness. And, and so I, 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 if, you've, if you've lost anybody close to you in your life, think about this. Uh, what can you do that they can no longer do, uh, that you can keep them close to you? Uh, so that's something to, to think about. And the other thing to think about, and this is my last thought, I promise, is... Some of the people that you know now, that you are practicing with now, are going to be and are already becoming your close spiritual friends. These people 
are the most precious thing in the world to you. These relationships in spiritual practice are unique. They're not the same as other relationships. There's a quality to them that touches the absolute. It touches something beyond our personalities. And this is not the case with ordinary human interaction and relationships. It is the case there too. It's just that that's not part of what we know we're doing together. In spiritual practice, we know we're doing that together. We know we're touching each other at that, at that level. And that is how people who have that interaction and that relationship with one another um, move each other so much that your life is never the same and you can do things together that ordinary people can't do because of that regard for one another. So it's already there in your lives now. And maybe it takes 40 years to kind of realize, oh, we've done that together. We've had that precious time together. Maybe you don't realize it till it's over. But it's there now in you. So uh, I guess maybe finally to say, think of that and think of who those people are for you and remember how precious they are. And remember, I always tell people, you know, you think you're going to the meditation hall for yourself to meditate. No. You're going there because of the other people who are there meditating. That's why you need to go. Don't go for yourself. That only goes so far, you know. If you're going for yourself, you won't last very long because there are too many other things you want to do for yourself that will be more compelling after a while. But if you're going there because you know that these are the treasures of your life, these other people sitting in this hall with you, then you're going there in a way that will really transform your life and transform your heart forever and ever. So think of that. Anyway, um, I know some of you in that way, right? Some of you are my very close spiritual friends. And um, it makes me so glad and so happy. I don't need to do anything else but literally show up and hang around with you. I wish I could be here more than I am able to be here. But every time I come, I feel that way. I feel like, ah. Oh, Thank goodness, I'm home. And I don't need anything else. It's the best thing. So please take care of the Jewish Meditation Center. Please take care of the Brooklyn Zen community. Take care of each other. And uh, if everything is good and you're still alive and I'm still alive and this building is still standing. I'll see you again here. Please take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.